Well, it is a privilege to be able to be here with you today, worshiping with you, and an extraordinary privilege to be able to stand in this pulpit and to bring the Word of God to you. I invite you at this time to turn in your copies of God's Word with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you're using the Bible that's provided on the seat, uh, this will be on page 1011. James chapter 1. As you turn there, uh, it occurred to me this morning that uh, this is actually my second time now preaching in this congregation. I actually preached here 15 years ago. I don't know if any of you were around at that time or remember it. Uh, I was uh, very young and still training for the ministry, and so there's a part of me that hopes nobody does remember that. (laughs) But I am glad to be able to be here. James chapter 1. Again, that's on page 1011 if you're using the Bible there on your chair. Let me read this morning the first opening section of this letter, uh, beginning in verse 1 and running through the 18th verse. Brothers and sisters, give your attention to the reading of God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts No one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, we'll end the reading of God's word there. If you'll bow with me in another word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, preaching is not Christ, but preaching is the great means that brings us into fellowship and communion with the living, resurrected, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And so, though folly to this world, 
We pray this morning that as we turn with an undivided heart, not only to the reading, but to the preaching of your word, may you bring us more and more into fellowship with Jesus Christ, that we might say, even with the scriptures, that it is Christ who lives within us as we seek to live the life of faith. Lord, conform our thoughts and our minds, conform our hearts and our affections to you this morning, that we might stand at the end of this day and have all the more reason to praise and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, it might be a a slightly broad generalization, uh, but it is one that stands up to criticism that the letter of James, this short New Testament epistle, uh, is a letter that has in many ways gotten a lot of negative attention uh, from so-called academics and scholars, those who would deem themselves the most educated. Uh, But for as much negative attention that it has gotten in some quarters of the scholarly world, This short letter, in many ways, is equally known and equally loved uh, by those we may call ordinary Christians. Uh, Many ordinary Christians have found in this letter a treasure trove uh, to the guidance of the life of faith, even while many people in the history of the church have been critical of it. And, And perhaps one of the reasons for that is Because sometimes the well-trained eye, sometimes uh, the the well-educated tend to be so educated that they lose sight of the practical. And that really is what this letter, the letter of James, is all about. It is about practical Christianity. It is the practical outworking, you may say, of the life of faith. Uh, This letter from the pen of James is not a letter that takes an evangelistic tone. James's concern here is, is not the question, what must we do to be saved? The tone of the whole letter uh, of James is not evangelistic in nature, but practically, now that we believe and have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ, now that we are living in, in the lavishness of the grace of God, how do we live? What should our lives look like? As we seek to look to the God who is faithful to all his promises, the God whom we read in the scriptures, whose will for us is our sanctification, what should the life of faith look like? And that is what the letter of James is all about. In the practical, ordinary, even at times, the mundane details of our daily lives, James wants to connect us to the reality of what the life of faith really looks like. And so that's what we have in this letter. What we have in this letter is is not just simply from the hand of James, but of course is a word that we receive from the Spirit himself, from the Holy Spirit who, who glorifies himself in the life of faith by being the one who equips and gifts us to do the things in our lives that are pleasing to God, and so we receive this letter from Him. But without prolonging my introduction, 
unnecessarily. I'm very jealous for the time that has been given to us this morning. I want to consider together this opening chapter of the letter of James uh, and how the life of faith begins to be described uh, by this man. Uh, And if you appreciate outlines, I have three simple points. Of course, that always makes for a good Presbyterian to have three points to every sermon. And so my points this morning, for those that like to follow along, my points are simply this. First, I want to begin with the experience of those to whom James is writing. What is their present experience when he writes this letter? Uh, Secondly, as the Spirit enables, I want to preach the expectation As we will see in time, James gives us some expectations for the life of faith. And finally, I want to end this morning on a note of exhortation. So the experience, the expectation, and the exhortation. Uh, So let me begin this morning first with this experience. The experience of those to whom James is writing. I want you to notice this morning that, that James opens this letter in a little bit of a unique way. Uh, If you're familiar with the letters of the New Testament, you know that most of them, and you can especially here think of the letters of the Apostle Paul, most of them are addressed specifically to a church or to a a group of churches within a geographical region. Uh, So we don't have to do much work to to remember that. The Apostle Paul writes to the the saints in Ephesus. Uh, Paul writes to those in Galatia. He writes to the Corinthians. But you'll notice that James is not a letter that is addressed to a particular church, to a particular congregation. Rather, look with me at verse 1, and and we see who it is that James is writing to. In verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and then here's how he identifies the ones that he's writing to. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Or or other translations uh, rightly also say in in a somewhat different way, but but still the same main point, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And, And I raise this point for you this morning because as we look at those words, we begin to understand something of the experience Uh, that these to whom James is writing are are going through in their lives. Uh, This is not a useless detail. No detail in the scriptures is useless, and we ought always to labor to understand why are these words here. And so we have that as James writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Who are these people, and what does this say about their experience? Well, without getting into all of the nuanced details, just briefly, to to the 12 tribes, uh, it is very likely that those to whom James is writing, they have a Jewish background. Uh, And of course, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know uh, uh, perhaps that, that it was committed to James... Together with the Apostle Peter, we we find this in Galatians chapter 2, James and the Apostle Peter were primarily entrusted with ministry to the circumcised. Whereas the Apostle Paul there in Galatians 2 was entrusted primarily with a ministry to the uncircumcised. Because we must remember, as the Apostle Paul says in in Romans chapter 1, that the gospel that is from faith and for faith is first to the Jews... And then to the Gentiles. 
And James is actually a leader, we learn, in Acts 15 of the church in Jerusalem. He's an elder there. And so he's writing to these people with a Jewish background, but, but that's not the only thing we know about them. That They're not just simply Jews. They are believing Jews. And, and we see that immediately in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. Now that is one of the affectionate terms that James uses throughout the whole of this letter. It's one of his favorite ways to address the people that he's writing to. Nineteen times. In this letter, he refers to these people that he's writing to as brothers or as beloved brothers. And of course, we understand if we know something of of the theology of Scripture and the theology of the New Testament, that, that that's not just a term that's bandied about. What James means there is these are those who are part of the family of God who through faith alone have believed in the promises of the gospel, are clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he is united to them in the bonds of brotherly love and brotherly affection. He is writing to Jewish believers. But maybe even more important than that little aspect, in helping us to understand the experience of these people, is what James further adds there in verse 1. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Why is that important? Well, maybe you remember, if you recall, the inspired history of the book of Acts. As it comes to us from Luke the physician. Uh, Maybe you remember... A pivotal moment in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 7, we read of the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, Stephen who preached the gospel so boldly and so courageously and it enraged those around him. Of course, what happened to Stephen? Stephen was stoned. And we read in Acts chapter 7 that he falls asleep in Jesus. And as Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, is called upon to seal his testimony with his blood, what immediately happens, do you remember, to the church in Jerusalem? They're persecuted. And that's what we begin reading in Acts chapter 8. A great persecution arises in the church of Jerusalem, and the result, as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 8, is the church in Jerusalem, all the believers, save the apostles, are scattered. They are driven out of their homes. They are driven away from family. They are driven away from friends. They are forced to leave the comfort and the safety and the security of all that was known to them at that point, and they were scattered among the regions. And that's that's the people James is writing to. A people who have suddenly found their lives overturned. A people who are, for all intents and purposes, they are strangers living in a strange land. A people who every day wake up with the profound awareness, we are not at home. But we are a scattered people throughout the nations. We're not at home. And understanding that experience is tremendously useful to us. And it's useful for this reason, friends. Because what is true of these people has been 
throughout the history of the church until the end of this world, this is the experience of the church. The church is a scattered people. Yes, there is a people from every tribe and every language and every nation. But our present reality, our present experience is we are a scattered people. And this is one of the significant paradigms that the New Testament instructs us. This is how you need to think of your present lives. You are strangers in a strange land. The language that the scriptures use are, we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are those who understand that though we are in the world, we are not of the world. That this present passing age is not our home. And friends, we need to be reminded of that. One of the great dangers that has faced and continues to face the church here in America is that for far too long we have been comfortable and cozy with the world around us. But, but more and more, brothers and sisters, more and more we are beginning to feel the world and our culture and our society having a vice grip on us. And more and more as we seek to be faithful to the word of God, we are being reminded on a daily basis, this is not our home. And it can't be. This is James's concern. If we were to go to James chapter 4, we would find that James is so concerned that as these people are scattered among the nations, something's going to happen. What's going to happen? They're going to become friends with the world. And James says, my brothers, you cannot be friends with this world. To be friends with this world means you are an enemy of God himself. And so praise the Lord that the church in our day and age is feeling more and more the unsettledness of not being home. We are a scattered people. And friends, we will continue to be scattered until that day when according to the gospel we preach, Jesus comes again and does what? As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, that day when Jesus will return at the sound of the trumpet and he will unite his church in heaven and on on earth and we will no longer be a people who are sown among the nations we will be a people who have been harvested we will no longer be a scattered people we will be a gathered people brought together in the perfection of unity and harmony to be in the presence of God forever but until that day we are not at home and we are a scattered people that is our present experience that's the first thing that I want you to notice this morning in these words. The experience. But then secondly, if we can make this text more clear, let's, let's focus secondly on the expectation. Uh, so a year and a half ago, just before COVID struck, I fulfilled a lifelong dream. I got the opportunity to travel to Scotland and to Ireland. Ever since I was a little boy, that's what I wanted to do. And I finally found an excuse to go, and my denomination paid for it because it was for committee work, which made it all the better. And in the months and the weeks and the days that led up to my, my travels, I, I really began to, to think through, I wonder what it is that I can expect. What's it going to be like when I step foot off that airplane and I walk into Scotland and my expectations were met because it was pouring rain? <laughs> but, but if you've ever traveled, you know that. 
Here I am, far away from home. Here I am in a strange place. Uh, I, I wonder what it is that I can expect in this place that isn't my home. And like a good pastor, James understands that as strangers in this world, there are certain things that we can expect. There are things that we need to expect. Because we're not at home. And we are living as strangers. And what is it that Pastor James wants us to know? What is it that we can expect? Well, in this opening section that we've read this morning, James really highlights two expectations for us. Uh, First and foremost, James says you can expect trials of faith. You can expect trials of faith. And and then secondly, he says the the other thing that you can expect as, as you keep your focus on the homeward journey, you can expect temptation. Those are the two great expectations. Trials and temptations. Let's look at each of those briefly in turn. First, James tells us, and and he really just immediately jumps into this. Uh, There's almost a a startling immediacy to the way that James writes. Right, Verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And then verse 2, he jumps in, he, he gets going like a horse out of the gate. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you meet trials. Of course, the trials that James is thinking of here, these aren't any ordinary hardships. These aren't any ordinary difficulties. These aren't any ordinary suffering that we might think of in life. But, but in particular, they are those things, they are trials that test our faith. That's what James says in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith. And James tells us, brothers and sisters, here's what you can expect. As you live in a world that is not your home, you can expect to meet with trials. And what those trials are going to do, they're going to test your faith. They're going to test, if I can express it this way this morning, they are going to test the grip that you have on the promises of Jesus Christ. It's going to be tried. And it's going to be tested. And and James says, not only is this the expectation, but look at the way he words this in the second verse. When you meet trials of various kinds. The word that he actually uses there for various kinds is the word multicolored. He is saying you are going to meet... You're going to meet with trials of all kinds of different shapes and sizes. You're going to meet with trial after trial after trial, all kinds of different trials of faith. And and if you know what it is to live the Christian life for five minutes, you immediately begin to relate. Because almost anything, almost anything in our lives... Any situation and any circumstance can become just that, a trial of faith. You get the bad doctor's report. The cancer's bad. It's inoperable. And not only do you have the burdens and the anxiety of of, of the physical, but it becomes a spiritual trial. 
can I really cling to the promises of Jesus when my prognosis is a death sentence? Can I say with Asaph, the psalmist, though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my strength and my portion forever. If you've been there, you know the trial that it is. And not only physical, sometimes these are intellectual trials. As you come up against the empty and the vain philosophies of this world that seek to undermine the credibility of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, can I really believe it? Can modern man in the 21st century, with all of our advancements, believe in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ? Can I have a conviction of things that are unseen? And intellectually, our faith is tried. We deal with losses. A reminder of what James will later say, that our life is but a vapor. A passing moment. And we struggle in those moments with the questions of faith. And James says, you've got to have your expectations moderated. Here's what's going to happen. Every step of the way back home, you are going to meet with various trials. And those trials are going to test your resolve. They're going to test your grip on all the promises of God in Jesus Christ that are yes and amen in him. And he says you can expect it. Physical trials, spiritual trials, losses and crosses, public trials, private trials, whatever it is, there's the expectation. But that's not the only thing James tells us that we can expect. Because we live in a world that's not our home. There's a major emphasis here on the trials, but, but you can see the way that James in some ways brings that part to a conclusion in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then notice the the, the slight turn of emphasis in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says, here's the other thing you can expect every step of the way. You can expect temptation. What is temptation? Well, for our purposes this morning, a very simple definition. What is temptation? Temptation, brothers and sisters, it's, it's a compelling force. Or to put it this way, it is a persuasion to do something. And set in its biblical context, what is it a persuasion to do? It is a persuasion to sin. To do that which God forbids. Sin as it is measured against the law of God. To either not do the good that you know you ought to do or to break the law of God. And what temptation is, temptation is the strong persuasion, the very, very, very strong persuasion to sin. And and James actually uses, he borrows, you might say, from, from the world of fishing. In verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed By his own desire. James is saying there are desires within us that appear bright and shiny. Much like that that lure you use to try to catch a fish. 
And and, and the consequent result, if we're not on our guard, is that we're going to be just like that foolish fish, and we're going to take the bait hook, line, and sinker. And he says, this is the reality. This is what you can expect in life. Not only are you going to have these trials that test your faith, you are also going to be battling every step of the way with inward temptations. You are going to be grappling with and debating with and arguing with the the, the strong impulse and the persuasions to sin. And James says, very simply, he's a pastor who knows the heart of those to whom he's writing. This is what you can expect. You can expect trials and you can expect temptations. And maybe as a bit of a tangential application to us this morning, you know, as parents, we should take this seriously. As leaders in the church, we need to take this seriously. James is prescribing something here that is is universally true of the church in all the ages. These are the two things to expect. In many ways, the Christian life, the life of faith is lived dealing with these two things. Dealing with the trials of the faith, the things that seek to draw you away from the Lord Jesus Christ and dealing with the reality of temptation in our lives. Our children need to hear this and our children need to be raised and they need to be trained on how to deal with these things. Because if they're not, and there is a long, long record of young men and young women who have grown up with no training on this, and we leave their, and they leave their homes and they're utterly destroyed because they've no idea how to deal with the trials of faith. They've no idea how to deal with the temptations of their heart, and it destroys them. And James is saying, this is the expectation for your life. If you're going to live the life of faith, if you're going to live in this present passing world as a stranger, here's the expectations. You're going to meet with trials and you're going to meet with temptations. But finally and briefly then this morning, let's think about the exhortation. The exhortation. James is a really good pastor. As he writes this letter, Uh, James doesn't just say, well, here's what you can expect. Trials of faith and temptations. And by the way, good luck dealing with those. That's not what James does. James goes on to exhort us. How are we to deal with these things? When we find ourselves having our faith tried. When we find ourselves under times of testing, when we sense within ourselves the very, very strong persuasion to sin, what is it that we do? And here's the wonderful thing. Something we often need to be reminded of, brothers and sisters. There is, if I can call it this this morning, There's a certain inflexibility to the Christian life. And what I mean by that is we are not left to to invent and create novel strategies for the Christian life. The Christian life doesn't need to be reinvented with every generation. There's an inflexibility to the life of faith That in a sense, if you understand what I'm saying this morning, it doesn't matter who you are, 
It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter when you are. There's an inflexibility to the Christian life, to the resources that God gives to us to live the life of faith that are universally and always applicable to our lives. So that what James can write to these who are scattered among the nations was as relevant for the early church and as relevant for the medieval church and as relevant for the Reformation church and as relevant for us this morning here in the 21st century in Rochester, Minnesota. And what is James's exhortation? How are we called in the resources that God gives and by his grace, how are we called to meet with the trials of faith and with temptation? Well, it's not rocket science. You don't need to go and get a PhD or a seminary education to understand James' exhortation. What do we need to do? First and foremost, James centers, doesn't he, on a life of prayer. Look at what he writes in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now let me back up for a moment. What's the connection? One of the big challenges of the letter of James, uh, which can really confuse people, is what's his logic? What's his flow of thought? Is this just suddenly randomly, he's like, all right, I finished a section there, now I'm going to tell you about... No, there's a connection here. And the connection can be seen in, in the use of vocabulary in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, and then in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Well, why does James here in verse 5 focus on wisdom? He does it for this reason. Look with me at verse 2. James tells us not only are we going to meet with various trials, but, but he gives this leading command in verse 2, count it all joy. The word that he uses there for count is, I want you to think about it, right? It's not that the trials of faith are joy in and of themselves, but James is saying we need our minds to begin thinking about our trials of faith as a source of joy. And, and why should they be a thing that, that create joy in our lives? Well, as he goes on to say in verse 4, uh, just very briefly, be, because the trials of faith are intended to grow us and to mature us, that we may be complete and lacking nothing. But of course, the natural question is, well, thanks, James, but how do I get there? How do I count my trials as joy? They hurt they're hard. They're costly. How do I do that? And that's where verse 5 comes in. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God for it. James understands, brothers and sisters, that the only way we are going to learn to count our trials as joy is if we have the wisdom of God. If the understanding and the knowledge and the insight of God himself overwhelms, you might say, our emotional responses to trials, overwhelms our fallen logic and our fallen reason. The only way that we can ever count our trials as a joy is to look at them through the lens of the wisdom of God. And James says, if you need that, ask God for it. And, and, and notice that prayer here is just a means to an end, isn't it? 
It's not just let him ask God, but James says, who gives generously to all without reproach. That's a very weak way to translate what James is actually saying here. Who gives generously. The the real force and the real emphasis of James is, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God why he is the generous giving God. Brothers and sisters, God has so magnified himself and God distinguishes himself and God glorifies himself in the midst of his people by being the generous giving God. It's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not then in him give us all things? And James is saying, this is part of the all things that are ours in Jesus. Wisdom from above to rightly meet the trials of faith. And James is utterly convinced if we pray for that, if we ask for that, God's going to give it because God glorifies himself in being generous to his children. So that it's never because God is withholding. And then James says, and we won't get too much into the details, as we pray for that wisdom, we need to then apply it to our circumstances. That's actually where verses 9 through 11 come in. Because one of the trials of faith is poverty, and one of the trials of faith is actually prosperity and riches. King Solomon teaches us that, doesn't he, in in Proverbs 30. Lord, give me neither poverty that I might curse your name and don't give me riches that I would forget you. And James is saying, pray for wisdom. God's going to give it. And when the generous giving God gives you wisdom, apply it. Apply it to your circumstances, to your situations. Apply it to the trial of faith. There's an inflexibility to the Christian life. James is saying, in this world, which is not our home, We need only be a praying people. Never underestimate the place and the value of prayer. It is one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life to be a person of prayer. And it is one of the greatest challenges of the life and the fellowship of any congregation to be a congregation of prayer. And James says that's how you live when you're not at home. But secondly, if that's his exhortation for our trials, what about our temptations? How do we meet with the temptations that we come across in this life? Well, notice in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is saying God is never the one that tries to persuade you to sin. Whenever you feel an impulse to sin, you can just, at face value, reject that. That's not of the Holy Spirit. That is not God that is trying to persuade me right now to be sinful. And then James lays all the responsibility on us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Why does James say don't be deceived? He says don't be deceived, friends, because every temptation is a lie. 
I, I once heard, and it's so true, there's no such thing as an honest fisherman. Fishermen work hard to be deceptive. Fishermen work terribly hard to be deceptive. And, and James is saying that's exactly how temptation works. There's no such thing as an honest temptation. It promises a lot. It looks bright and shiny. It looks tasty. And it's death. And James is saying, here's the reality. In my exhorting you, he's saying you need something in your life that is stronger than the deceptive power of temptation. And it is a power. Temptation comes, as I have said, and I can't say it with enough emphasis. Temptation comes really persuasively. And what is it that's going to drive out the deception? Again, James casts us back onto the character of God. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not only is he the generous God, he's the good God. He is good, he can be nothing but good, and all he does is good. And what is one of the greatest expressions of the goodness of our God in our lives? In verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by what? By the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Can I simply put it this way? Not only is James here exhorting us to be a people of prayer, he's exhorting us to be a people of the word. Because, brothers and sisters, it is the word of truth alone. It is the word of God alone which can come against all the deceptions of temptation and overwhelm the persuasive power of temptation. It is only the divine truth of God revealed in his word. It is only the word of truth that is strong enough to drive out and to, to outvoice, you might say, the voice of temptation. And James is saying this is what our good God has given us. This God in whom there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. He has given us the word of truth. And it is by the word of truth that he brings us forth. Friends, we need a much higher estimate of the word of God. Even in Presbyterian circles, I fear we run the risk to belittle the word of God. The word of God itself is effectual. It accomplishes what it commands. It is a living and an active word. It actually does something. It doesn't just fill our head with facts. It changes our habits. It changes our desires. It changes our passions and it gives us new ways of thinking. And James is saying, that's what God has given us in the word of truth. It's why reading your scriptures is so important. It's why praying according to the promises of the word is so important. Why singing the word is important. Why coming even this morning to the visible word is so important. It's why preaching is so important. Because in the hand of the Spirit, it is the very means by which God brings forth, bears in our lives a change of mind and habits that the persuasive power of temptation would be lessened and dulled. And James is saying, there's my exhortation to you. As you live in this world, 
that is not your home, as you come across the trials of faith and as you come into contact with temptations, it's the inflexibility of the Christian life, it's prayer, and it's the Word. And James is saying, you commit yourselves to that. In the day of your sojourn, commit yourselves to that. And then with the psalmist in Psalm 84, advancing still from strength to strength, they go where other pilgrims trod, till each to Zion comes at length and beholds the face of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sustain us day by day. That the very word that called creation into existence is the same word that sustains us and preserves us. As we set our eyes on home, longing for that day when we will no longer be strangers, Lord, we pray that you would continue to keep us. Jesus, we know that we have been entrusted to you that it is all your glory to keep us from stumbling until that day when you will present us without fault before the presence of your Father's glory with great joy. And so we join with the saints of all the ages in saying to you belong all glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.